Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with Professor Akhil Amar as the school year begins. Welcome, Akhil. Thank you very much, Andy. It is indeed always an exciting part of my cycle, my rhythm, when school begins. Exhilarating and terrifying. So you're wearing your professorial hat more these days, although... Really, you wear it all the time, don't you? I mean, it's it's the professor's job is more than just teaching in class, isn't it? Well, in my view, what a professor is is someone who professes the truth as she or he understands it. This podcast is an extension of my professorial role. It's designed for broader public education. The idea, Andy, is to give uh, to the world for free a high-level, frankly, Yale Law School-worthy education in constitutional law. And welcome to all our audience members, uh, old and and new. That's what we promise. That's what we're trying to provide. And and we're very grateful that you're along for the ride. I think that one thing that we do that's, that's unique, or perhaps not unique, but at least special, um, is we're not just reciting uh, known areas of constitutional law. So I, I would make the analogy to my daughter, actually. Um, my daughter, when she was younger, she used to enter this uh, competition called National History Day. And it wasn't a day. She'd spend a year preparing a project, which she would then present in competition. And her projects involved documentaries, so they were videos, uh, video documentaries. And when, when she started doing them, my advice to her was, don't just do a book report. Don't tell us everything that's already known. Instead, you know, add to the knowledge of the world and then share it in this documentary. And here we are with Akil. And recently we did a, an episode on the Fourth Amendment. And what we said in that episode, was going, we're going to upend everything you thought you knew about the Fourth Amendment. And that's because Akil is the author or the originator or at least the professor of ideas that are different in some ways than the conventional ideas. They may become the conventional ideas, but uh, you're getting really a, a primary perspective, if you will, on these things. And we're going to do that again today. We're going to do it today with the Fifth Amendment. The podcast is Andy's brainchild, but he was kind enough to agree to caption it, America's Constitution. You're getting my take on the Constitution, and, and I'm going to make a method point and a substance point. Here's the method point. The Constitution is a project, it's something that actually people do every day. They do constitutional law. And the deep, one of the deepest tensions in the field is the tension between what the Supreme Court actually does day in and day out, doctrine, in the name of the Constitution. And that's what most people in American law schools call constitutional law, what the Supreme Court does day in and day out in the name of the Constitution, precedent, doctrine. The tension between all of that and between what the Constitution's text as originally understood, and that includes the amendments, what that document actually really, quote unquote, says, at least as, as I read it based on, on my scholarship, the tension between the document and the doctrine. And in a lot of areas, the doctrine actually aligns pretty well with the document, but not in every area. And one of the biggest issues in the field is what's the relationship between the document and the doctrine. That was, for example, at the heart of the Dobbs litigation about Roe versus Wade, which we talked about in many previous episodes. 
Okay, so that's a method point, and you're going to get a lot of, of that in this podcast because unlike other people who do constitutional law, this is a Marcus constitution, not someone else's, is I'm particularly interested in what the text actually says and whether it aligns with the case law or not. I know the case law. I know backwards and forwards and sideways, just like other con law professors might. But I'm often also saying, oh, but does that actually square with the original understanding? Second, that's the method point. The second thing that I'm purporting to offer with Andy in this podcast is a genuinely panoramic understanding of the American constitutional project. I try to cover the waterfront in my scholarship. And I'm going to be honest, you don't don't have to like the audacity and ambition and maybe even arrogance of what I'm about to say, but I'm, I'm professing the truth as I understand it. I think I've actually written about more different parts of the Constitution, become, frankly, an expert on, sometimes an expert, sometimes maybe the expert, because there's no one else out there who's interested in this obscure provision or that one or this clause or or that one. I've tried to become an expert on more, and, and I think I have actually become an expert on more different, distinct provisions of the Constitution, more amendments, more clauses, more concepts and principles, like popular sovereignty or unitary executive or what have you than anyone else out there. And and I think actually it's, it's a hard thing to do. It's a kind of, uh, if I were an athlete and I'm not, <laughs> and if you ever saw me, you would know that I'm not. I'm trying to be a decathlete of a certain sort, trying to do the discus and the shot put and the hurdles and sprints and the like, and then actually try to put it all together and show you actually that these different parts of constitutional law fits together holistically in certain ways. It's an ambitious project. It's an audacious project. It's America's constitution. I'm grateful that you're willing to give me a chance, uh, audience, you know, week after week to try to actually show you the different parts and then show you how they fit together into a panoramic project that is, in my view, America's constitution, but also, I admit, America's constitution. And, you know, you're certainly out there on the ledge because you're critical of those who do a lot of things but do them in a shallow way. And personally, you've I've brought things up to you and you've said, no, I don't want to talk about that because I'm not an expert in it. Yes. So now here you are saying, well, I know all these different things. um, But at the same time, you don't respect people that talk, you know, fully that, that talk about things they're not expert on. So yeah, here's the challenge. Yes, if you want to be panoramic, it's really hard to be panoramic and deep, okay? You can be deep. You can really be the world's expert on free exercise uh, clause or on self-incrimination or on the Fourth Amendment. You could go way deep, and that's what a lot of people do, and I really respect that. Or you could try to be panoramic and you know a little bit about this and a little bit about that. And, and I respect the panoramic ambition. But if you only are an expert in one field, you may not understand actually how it connects to other parts of constitutional law. And if you try to be panoramic, but you really don't master the details, it's going to be a shallow panorama. So yes, the, the ambition here is actually to be both deep and broad. It's a hard thing to do. Maybe I'm a flop. That's That ultimately will be for history to decide. But that's what I'm trying to do in my scholarship, is actually become an expert on 
many, many, many different parts of the Constitution and then begin to show you how they, they fit together both methodologically and substantively into a, a larger whole. So did you start off with a view that the Constitution was something that needed to be understood as a whole? or, or And then you said, okay, I'm going to learn the different parts, you know, one at a time, and then eventually they'll come together for me? Or did you start off just looking at one thing and then eventually you started to see this, this pattern? I started out small. I tried to go deep. I wanted to make sure that anything that I wrote about, what I tended to write about, was often one narrow thing at a time. I wanted to make sure that I actually had, had read all the scholarship about it and all the cases, knew all the primary sources and historical evidence. Another way of saying that is I started out writing articles. And only after I'd written a whole bunch of articles about a whole bunch of topics did they begin to knit together into books. And my first book was actually a collection of articles. The first time I actually published a book that began as a book, that was conceptualized as a book, that was actually 2005, America's Constitution and Biography. I was already 45 years old by the time. And I, I started writing that in about 2001. So I'm 40 years old, more than 40 years old before I try and uh, sit, sitting at a keyboard in the first keystroke to write a panoramic book. I started out article after article and oh, Andy, some of the articles, very tedious indeed. My first article that I published after I graduated from, from law school is about jurisdiction stripping, but I claim the, that the key to everything is one three-letter word in the Constitution, the word all, that appears selectively in Article 3. It appears, there's that thing called the menu, the jurisdictional menu of Article 3, and there are nine different items on the menu, and the word all appears in connection with three of the menu items and not the other six. And, and almost no one had ever paid any attention to this totally trivial, so it seemed, thing but it turns out, because I went really, really deep, that at least one person had, had seen this before. And it turned out that person was actually pretty significant. Joseph Story, for those of you who are into, into law, Joseph freaking Story, the most distinguished associate justice to sit on the Supreme Court in the 19th century, the greatest legal scholar, constitutional scholar in America of that century. And he saw it, and he saw it actually in a canonical case, Martin versus Hunter's Lessee, which everyone knew about, but no one had read with care. Uh, Mark Twain defines a classic as something everyone wants to have read, but no one wants to read. Well, when you read Martin with, in great detail, oh, Joseph Story says, oh, this word all, which is used selectively, that's important. And he comes back to it in a three-volume treatise. But that had been completely forgotten by the scholarly community. I come along and I'm, I'm just doing, I'm a narrow little burrower. I'm, I'm digging deep and deep and deep, but I find I find actually a huge diamond down there. So I began, truthfully, deep but narrow and small. And over the course of time, I just would do that again and again and again. And it turns out, oh, my gosh, I'm in a diamond mine. You know, I'm in a gold mine here. I, there are more nuggets nearby, but each time I, I actually dig deep. And then I, only after a while do I see, ah, there's a vein of ore here, of gold ore, of silver ore here. And, and I begin to see the larger system that's generating these individual nuggets. You know, you say that uh, uh, America's Constitutional Biography is your first book that you deliberately put pen to paper on. But of course... You had written the book on the Bill of Rights, um, as well which as which began book. as two articles. Yes, as well as another book on criminal procedure, but which the, began as several articles, one of which we're going to talk about today. 
Right. But my point that I'm I'm making here is that even these books, even if they didn't intend you didn't intend them from the very beginning, they also take a panoramic view of sorts, right? That the that the criminal procedure one is about how the the various uh, amend some of the amendments work together in criminal, and then the Bill of Rights is is a book about how to see the Bill of Rights as a whole rather than the in, the amendments individually, at least in part. So um, he, he and and we're going to get to this very quickly. I apologize to the audience for all the self absorption, but but some of you are interested in how scholarship actually occurs. So we're going to talk about especially an article that I co-wrote with a student actually, called Fifth Amendment First Principles. And that article was a sequel to the article that we talked about previously, just two episodes ago, Fourth Amendment First Principles. So Andy, just in a nutshell, here's how actually my books came together. I, at a certain point, wrote an article about the Bill of Rights, and it was called the Bill of Rights as a Constitution. It's 1991, and the key idea of that article was let's look at actually all the provisions of the Bill of Rights and not just one or two. Here's how the article begins. To many Americans, the Bill of Rights stands as the centerpiece of our constitutional order, and yet constitutional scholars lack an adequate account of it. Instead of being studied holistically, so this is 1991, I'm beginning six years into the project to see, oh, I got to think about things more holistically. Instead of being studied holistically, the bill has been chopped up into discrete chunks of text with each bit examined in isolation. In a typical law school curriculum, for example, the first, ninth, and tenth amendments are integrated into an introductory survey course on constitutional law. The sixth, Eighth and much of the fifth are taught in criminal procedure. The seventh is covered in civil procedure. The takings clause is featured in property. The fourth amendment becomes a course unto itself or perhaps is folded into criminal procedure or evidence because of the judicially created exclusionary rule. And the second and third are ignored. Now, just two or three things about that. So first, I'm beginning now to discover holism six years into law teaching. I actually say, oh, and the Second Amendment is completely ignored, and it was back then. People actually didn't write about the Second Amendment because the Supreme Court hadn't written about the Second Amendment. Just to give you some of the shorthands there, well, the First Amendment, speech, press, petition, assembly, free exercise, non-establishment. Ninth is about unenumerated rights. Tenth Amendment about states' rights. Okay, that was con law in the con law uh, curriculum. The Sixth Amendment, I say, and the Eighth and much of the Fifth, They're taught in criminal procedure. Much of the fifth, that's the self-incrimination clause that we're going to talk about today. There's another clause about grand juries in the Fifth Amendment. Sixth Amendment has stuff like criminal jury trial, confrontation right, compulsory process, counsel, speedy trial, public trial. The eighth is about bail and cruel and unusual punishment. I mentioned the Seventh Amendment. That's about civil juries, which is why it's covered in a course called civil procedure. The takings clause, that's also in the Fifth Amendment. That's covered in the property course. I mentioned the Fourth Amendment is taught in criminal procedure or evidence because of the judicially created exclusionary rule. So I'm already hinting there the exclusionary rule is actually judicially created and not really in the document. So I wrote this article saying, oh, what if we actually asked questions like, what do all the provisions of the First Amendment have in common, if anything? Speech, press, petition, assembly, 
free exercise, non-establishment um, clause. Six different clauses. How, how do they fit together? Why are they all in the same amendment? Oh, and what if we asked, you know, why the second and the third amendments are back to back with each other or what they have in common, what the first and the second has in common with the fourth? Because the words the people appear in the first amendment and in the second amendment and in the fourth and in the ninth and tenth for that matter. That's going to later become an article called intratextualism, how certain words actually recur in the document. There's a pattern to certain word choices. So I'm beginning to see that and ask these kinds of questions. You know, we call it a bill of rights as if it's an ensemble, a collection. Is it really? Is it just a grab bag of different things or is it actually an ensemble? So that was the Bill of Rights as a Constitution, 1991. And then I realized, hmm, Maybe there's something bigger here. Maybe I could write a book about the Bill of Rights as a whole. But one, I'm going to need to learn a lot more about how the Bill of Rights changed its meaning, if it did, after the Civil War. So I'm going to need to write at least one more article about the Reconstruction, about what lawyers call incorporation. And we've talked about that a lot. So, oh, that's going to involve a very different time period. I'm going to need to do a lot more digging. I'm going to need to, you know, pick up my axe and, and, and shovel and, and move over to a slightly different field, historically speaking, and, and start digging. So that became a sequel article, the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment. And now I think, oh, and I didn't start out this way. I'm halfway to a book, but if I really want to write a book, I'm going to need to new, learn more about the criminal procedure provisions because I kind of gave them short shrift in that Bill of Rights as a Constitution article. I talked about them a little bit, but not deeply enough because I didn't know very much about criminal procedure at the time. But I thought if I'm going to write a book and it's going to be a panoramic book, but also a deep book, I've got to become an expert on Fifth Amendment self-incrimination and compulsory process and confrontation clause and the like. I ended up, it took me a long time to become an expert on each of these different provisions. And when I did, I started out by writing an article kind of clause by clause. Okay, here's the Fourth Amendment and its first principles. Oh, here's the companion self-incrimination clause, or some people think it's the companion self-incrimination clause in the Fifth Amendment. As our audience is going to hear, as they already heard it a little bit, we get the idea of the exclusionary rule not from the Fourth Amendment alone, but from the Fourth Amendment in tandem with Fifth Amendment self-incrimination ideas. Oh, and then there's going to be another article that I write called Sixth Amendment First Principles. And you, you get the point. I start by digging deep, trying to understand each clause or cluster of clauses, because sometimes an amendment is a cluster of clauses. I, I told you on its own. I told you, for example, that the Sixth Amendment, oh, it's about confrontation and compulsory process and public trial and jury trial, and speedy trial. Oh, it's about actually several things. I started out very much as a detailed guy, going deep, issue by issue by issue. And then with the books, I tried to pull the camera back and see if there was a larger panoramic picture project. Are there themes that emerge when you actually notice that the first, the second, the fourth, the ninth, and the tenth all use the phrase the people, which is a phrase in the preamble and also in Article 1, Section 2, which becomes methodologically an article called intratextualism. So a couple of things. First of all, I think that uh, it's not surprising when we see what, what you're saying about how you study these things in depth and then you start to see connections among them. 
and that leads to more scholarship, which is in some ways, you know, more fundamental and more rewarding. It's not surprising given that, that first of all, you and I become friendly and also that Everscholar has become involved. Uh, and as you know, Everscholar is a sponsor of America's Constitution. Um, because in Everscholar, for those of you who don't know in our audience, um, the idea is for people like me and you, audience, um, to even after we're long since graduated from college and in our careers, or even after our careers, if we're retired, to take this method of learning and enhance our lives with it. So in Everscholar, we take very, very broad topics and we go into them in minute detail. And then uh, over time, as we eat within these courses, and then as you take perhaps more than one course, you start to see the connections. So for example, we had a course called World Order and the Meaning of History. Now, if you could think of a broader topic than that, <laughs> I, I, I congratulate you. Um, and But in that course, we read lots and lots of things that were focused, um, but we saw the connections among them, and that, that gave rise to big lessons. And then later, we, you know, there might be another course. So, for example, I took a course in Everscholar this year on Montaigne, the great essayist. You might think that has absolutely nothing to do with world order and the meaning of history. And I'm not going to get into too much detail now, but in fact, uh, having taken that prior course, just the light bulb went on many times during the course. These kind of unforeseen and unanticipated connections are the reward for looking at things uh, minutely, but with an eye to the overall uh, truth. And so, okay, so that's one thing. And then the other thing that come that I'm I'm thinking when I'm listening to you, Akil, is this this is very consistent with your overall project of originalism. Um, the idea that originalism is not looking at one word in the text only. Yes, you look at the word. You wrote the little article about all, or the big article about all. Yeah, it was a long article yes. about a, a, a big a article about word. a little word, yes. Yeah. But big ideas came out of it that then connect to other parts of the Constitution. So that by, you know, and if you want to be a decathlete, you've got to learn the technique of the shot put. Um, you know, it, it may not really teach you how to do the javelin, but being an overall athlete, you know, will help you in all of those uh, events. And similarly here, um, you're looking at the little and getting the big. That's the originalism project is detail and holism. Um, so that's Everscholar, that's originalism, and that's America's Constitution. So with that, let's get into a discussion of the Fifth Amendment and see about again, how it may connect to other things we've talked about or haven't talked about. And how do we get to this decision to talk about the Fifth Amendment? It's through a very uh, familiar and unfortunate path, ex-president Donald Trump. Once again, he's in the news. Uh, in this case, it was a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, he was, uh, I guess, subpoenaed to give a, give, test, give a deposition in a civil suit um, or, or at least a civil investigation, actually, there is no suit yet, uh, by the Attorney General of uh, New York State, Letitia James, who's investigating some of uh, Mr. Trump's real estate practices. 
And uh, he was asked to give a deposition, and he answered one question. He answered the question as to what was his name. And then after that, he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So what are your thoughts when you hear that, Akil? That we need to figure out what Fifth Amendment self-incrimination is all about. Is it permitted to take the fifth in a civil case, for example? And what does it mean to take the fifth in the civil case? Because the words of the Constitution, which I will read now, say the following. No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. So how do you how are you even allowed to take the fifth, as it were, in a civil context, civil de- uh, deposition? And so that's like one puzzle. Why are you even allowed to do it? And if you're allowed to do it, why can you be actually treated worse in any way because you've taken the fifth? In legalese, can an adverse inference be drawn against you because you've taken the fifth. It turns out in in a criminal case, you're allowed to take the fifth and no adverse inference can be drawn against you. The jury can't treat you any worse because you would actually took the fifth than, than if you didn't, in theory. So now we have two puzzles. One, maybe three. Is that the right rule? Is it really compulsion to just have an adverse inference drawn against you in a, if you take the fifth in a criminal case? Two, let's imagine, actually, that it is compulsion. But why? Okay. But then the second question would be, can you take the fifth outside of a criminal case, in a civil case? And if the answer is you can. Three, why isn't it now improper compulsion if there is an adverse inference, as doctrine says, actually um, is allowable in a civil dis- a d- deposition? So already you see if... If you have my cast of mind, the deep questions that are raised by this uh, little incident. And we'll get into all of that in this episode, and I think we'll probably need to carry it over, Andy, into the, the, the next episode. But these and other things are the puzzles that I try to solve, the, the questions I try to answer, the knots that I try to unravel in an article co-authored with my dear friend and great student, Rene Leto. Now, Renee Leto Lerner, who is a professor at GW Law School, the article was entitled Fifth Amendment First Principles, the Self-Incrimination Clause. We're going to put it up on the show notes. Let me just read to you the table of contents because I, I composed that and I think a kind of cutesy way. There's the introduction and section one, the puzzle. And let me read again the amendment to you, which is how the book, uh, how the article begins. No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Okay, that seems simple enough, and there are not that many words there. About 15 or so words I'm counting. Okay, so, you know, gee, what's the problem? Okay, so here's the table of contents. Introduction, and part one, the puzzle. Person, question mark, compelled, question mark, in any criminal case, question mark, witness, question mark, what's the big idea, question mark. And then part two, the solution, person, compelled, in any criminal case, witness, the big ideas, and then the conclusion, okay? So like in person, for example, can a corporation take the fifth? 
And it turns out, actually, it cannot. It's entitled to many, many rights that natural persons are. You can't, for example, take its property without just comp- uh, the property of a corporation without just compensation. It's actually in law entitled to equal protection and due process, fair procedures. Oh my God, the mind explodes. In the Constitution, Akhil, are corporations persons? And Akhil says, well, yes and no. And you say, what do you mean? I say, well, they're persons for some purposes and not others. Okay, Akhil, how about within the meaning of the 5th and 14th Amendments? Are they persons, for example, within the meaning of equal protection? Akhil says, yes and no. What the hell do you mean, Akhil? They are persons for certain equal protection clause purposes involving, for example, if, if the government discriminates in favor of one corporation and against another, in general, a corporation can bring a lawsuit. Railway Express actually is a famous case involving a corporation's equal protection clause case, but not under the one person, one vote line of cases under the equal protection clause. Corporations don't get to vote. Okay. So a corporation is a person and not a person within the meaning of the same clause of the Constitution. That's also true when it comes to the Fifth Amendment. A corporation is a person for due process persons in general, but it turns out it's not a person for self-incrimination purposes. Well, that's interesting. Is that doctrine correct or not? Why? So what do you mean person? Okay, compelled. We've already begun to talk about what kind of compulsion are you actually talking about? Is drawing an adverse inference improper compulsion or not? In any criminal case, we've just talked about that. Well, what about in a civil case or in other contexts? Can you take the fifth outside of the criminal case? What count as a criminal case? Does a police station interrogation count as a criminal case before you've even been charged with anything? Is a grand jury proceeding a criminal case before you've even been charged with anything? Witness. What does it mean to be a witness against yourself? If, for example, the government grabs my arm, sticks a needle in my vein, pulls out my blood, and uses my blood against me to, in a criminal case um, to convict me of a crime because there's an ABDO blood type match, because there's a DNA match, because the blood has alcohol in it, and I was driving. The blood has drugs in it, and, and I was driving. When the government does that to me, uses my very body against me, my, my, my very physical essence, my very person, have I been made unconstitutionally to be uh, compelled to be a witness against myself or not? Um, we're going to talk about that. And then the big idea. My claim is linguistically, Each of these issues is indeterminate, corporation or not. What compulsion might or might not mean. There's a whole range of possible things that might or might not be compulsion. You know, how to think about taking the fifth outside a criminal case. Because in fact, you can, but there's certain consequences. But but why and and what are the rules and what should the rules be? You know, should we treat blood as witnessing or fingerprinting as witnessing or not? Oh, in a lineup, they can't put me on the stand. If I object in a criminal case, but they can actually in a lineup make me stand up alongside other people and show up and, and, and the witness can actually look at me and I, apparently I have to say my name, Donald J. Trump. So where's that coming from? But in a lineup, they can even make me utter words. They can make me say actually, cause 
I know this is true because I've seen it in 10 Law and Order episodes. You know, it has, so it has to be true. They can make the suspect say, stick them up the way the, the actual criminal did. Or if, if it, it's some sort of telephone threat, they can actually make you utter the words, I'm going to kill you tonight or something like that. Okay. So why isn't that making me a witness against myself? You're using my vocal cords, my consciousness, forcing me to articulate certain words. They can make me wear a certain costume, a a shirt, a blouse, a a vest um, that, that corresponds with the crime scene. Okay. Here's my claim. The words can't answer any of the, these are, there is, there's an indeterminacy about the word witness, about the word person, about the word compelled, about the phrase criminal case, when it starts and, and how to think about taking the fifth, as it were, outside of criminal case. I claim is you can't answer any of those linguistic challenges, puzzles, which originalists focus on, you know, words, especially originalists of a Scalia score sort, without actually understanding the big idea or ideas. And once you have a vision of the big ideas, the panoramic vision, you can begin to answer each of these questions consistent with your vision of why we have the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination clause. There's only one problem. It's not at all clear why we have it. One of our more important constitutional provisions, I promise you, when you get into the literature, you know, one of the first things that almost all the scholars say is, gee, this thing has been around for a long time. It goes back to a Roman maxim, canon law and, and, and Roman practice, thousands of years old, and different people at different times in different places have attributed different purposes and meanings to this phrase. In, in some versions, in state constitutions or in, in some legal traditions, it's no person shall be compelled to give evidence against himself in a criminal case rather than be a witness. Does that matter when it comes to blood, for example, the difference between giving evidence against yourself and being a witness against yourself? And why, you know, should that matter or shouldn't that matter? So, oh, this was a juicy one for, for, for me as a scholar just to try to figure out what each of the words meant but I couldn't do that until I actually had theory about why, about what the real purpose was. And, and ideally, because I'm a holist, how that idea fit together with other ideas in the Constitution, especially other ideas in the Constitution's rules about criminal procedure. So how does this Fifth Amendment idea fit or not fit with the Fourth Amendment and the exclusionary rule? Because this is a rule of a criminal exclusion, you see. In a criminal case, certain things must be excluded, namely compelled witnessing. It's a rule of criminal exclusion. How does it fit with the Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule or, or not fit? How does it cohere or not cohere with other rules of criminal procedure about juries and public trial and speedy trial and confrontation of of witnesses against you and compulsory process of witnesses in your favor and the like. Okay. So that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. So you've teed up a whole lot of questions and it can be bewildering. So it's helpful to have a method. Um, and this is originalism that we're putting on trial here once again in the context of the fifth amendment and then its own contexts. So let's, uh, get, Let's start with the text and go from there. Find the big idea and then eventually come back to the facts of the particular case, which in, in this case, we're going to, audience, we're going to take you back to Donald Trump taking the Fifth Amendment, even though that may not be paradigmatic in some ways. It's a civil case, you know, and so forth. But 
Nevertheless, uh, I think we'll see some of the principles that we outline here in any Fifth Amendment uh, quandary that we may that we may come across. So why don't we start uh, with the text and for your originalism uh, analysis, Sakil? Amendment five: No person dot 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 shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Now that's a phrase in English, that goes back thousands of years, as I mentioned before, you you can find it in ancient Rome. I'm going to embarrass myself here because I I don't speak Latin or read Latin, know Latin, but one of the classic versions of the Latin maxim, which one will see in many, many old texts, ancient texts, is Nemo tenater se ipsum accusare. Nemo is no man, Tanatra is bound to say Ipsum is himself uh, to accuse himself. To in some other versions, actually, it's slightly different. Nemo Tanatur prodere say Ipsum. No person is obliged to produce evidence against himself. So and so they're they're slightly different versions. Now let me tell you that there are many possible big ideas competing to be the animating principle of the Fifth Amendment, and they can't all be right. And if we're holist, we need to understand how this procedural rule, it's a rule of criminal procedure about how criminal courtrooms basically operate in its course, about witnessing in a criminal case. That's, that's the core textual idea, how this seemingly technical rule about what happens in a courtroom is going to interact uh, act with all sorts of broader considerations and phenomena outside the courtroom. One thing we want to ask ourselves when we think when we look at the big idea is, is that part of the big idea? In other words, the, is is this is the idea really just an idea of criminal procedure, or is it a reflection of something more fundamental in the Constitution that should extend beyond criminal procedure, we should read into other parts of the Excellent. Constitution as well. You, and brilliant, and we're going to get into, is it just procedure? Are there substantive elements? Very, very broadly speaking, there are two camps. The camp that sees this as about protecting guilty people in various ways, and the competing camp, in which I locate myself, that's about protecting innocent people from erroneous conviction. So just keep that in mind, audience, as we march through history and across the globe. Let's start in ancient Rome. Let's start before conversion of Constantine. Okay, so the empire is a pagan empire, and there's the young Christian church, because Roman law and canon law eventually are going to um, interrelate once Rome becomes Christianized. But there is an earlier moment in which the Christians are persecuted, you see, and, that, and that's, you know, the, the Roman Colosseum and, and lions devouring. So let's take Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine says that when one has sinned, one should confess. Confession is actually a sacrament, along with marriage, baptism, confirmation, the last rites and pre-unction ordination to the church. It's, it's one of the more important elements of the Catholic Church. And Andy might be smiling here because he and I are obsessed by the Godfather. And, and in one, okay, it begins with a wedding. 
you see, and there's a funeral in it, um, Vito Corleone's. And of course, the, the dramatic high point is the baptism of Michael's godson. And there's some other things that go on kind of simultaneously with that that we don't need to get into. But okay, so the church has some really important rituals and beliefs, doctrines. If I were a Diane Feinstein, I would say dogma. You know, the dogma lives within you. She's or something like that is strong, is strong in you. She was some Yoda speak in the first confirmation hearing of Amy Coney Barrett. You see, for the Court of Appeals. Okay, now confession from a certain religious point of view is a good thing. It's good for the soul. You should confess and unburden yourself. Oh, but now if it's a crime, a capital offense in the pagan empire to be a Christian. <laughs> we need to refine this idea if we want to protect Christians and the church, because if the idea is, oh, you have a duty to go to the secular authorities and tell them that you're a Christian, this is not going to be such a, such a brilliant idea for the church. So actually there's a refinement. There is not a duty, an obligation to confess to secular authorities, okay? Maybe to your priest. Why? Because the substantive law of the Roman Empire is bad. It makes it, a, from you know our point of view, or for the Christian's point of view, it makes it a crime to, to be a Christian. And that should never be a crime, we now think today. Christians always thought. But you see, in that world, the Nemo Tenator maxim or slogan actually was, to a certain extent, designed to protect guilty people as such, but they were guilty of something that shouldn't have been a crime to begin with. Andy, you see how that's beginning to answer your question. Is it merely a rule of procedure or is it something broader than that? In Rome, before Constantine's conversion, you know, and then eventually we're going to get the Nicene Creed and, and, and all the rest and a kind of fusion of church and state, Caesar or papism, when the head of the church is also going to be the head of the state in the Christian era in Rome. So you see Early on, it's about protecting guilty people as such from being put to death for a crime that really shouldn't be a crime. Okay, now flash forward hundreds of years and let's move thousands of miles forward in time. Before we do that, I mean, it seems a little ironic that the law or would contain something that protects people on the, on the basis that the law itself has failed, or the law itself is... Oh, well, maybe this originated, and I'm not an expert on this, it originated in church teachings that were eventually then picked up by the state in various ways. This sometimes happens, you know, ideas become maxims or something, and then get transplanted in different contexts, and now actually they, they can have utterly different implications when transplanted into a different context, but unless you're a scholar of the thing, you might not realize that the, the thing has, has completely morphed, and maybe actually it shouldn't have been adapted once, yes, Andy, you see, you're a functionalist. Gee, once you know, know it's no longer a crime to be a Christian, does this make sense anymore? Let's flash forward, because even if it's not a crime to be a Christian... It is a crime, let's say, in Britain in the 1600s. It's not a crime now to be Christian. It might be a crime to be a, a, a Protestant too soon, you know, or a Catholic a little bit later on. So we're going to have some of these same issues. You can be a Christian, but you have to be the right kind of Christian, don't you see? Because there are laws of blasphemy and there's an established church after Henry the Eighth. It's going to be the Anglican Church. And before that, it actually was part of Christendom under the Pope. Of course, Henry very famously breaks 
with the Pope uh, who won't allow him to divorce. So before 1696, basically criminal defendants don't have lawyers in Britain as a general proposition. The Treason Trials Act of 1696 is going to begin to provide for lawyers, but they're not that common. Now, I'm channeling here the work of my great colleague and and mentor and and very dear friend, John Langbein, who's been a, an extraordinary avuncular figure in my life. Uh, he's, a, he's a sterling professor emeritus at Yale, and he's a preeminent legal historian, especially of English law and especially English criminal law and procedure. And his co-author, by the way, in an epic book that he writes about the history of the common law, his co-author is Rene Leto, uh, now Renee Leto Lerner, who was my co-author way back when, when she was a student on Fifth Amendment First Principles, the article. So a big shout out to her. But Langbein argues that in a world without lawyers, okay, you have you have a right to remain silent. You have, but but as a practical matter, that's a right to slit your own throat because if you don't speak for yourself. Who will speak for you if you don't have a mouthpiece, if you don't have a lawyer? Go ahead, knock yourself out. We're not going to force you to talk. Under the procedural rules at the time, even if you didn't formally testify, by making your defense in various ways, you were kind of, and you weren't under oath, you were basically telling your side of the story. And if you didn't do that, no one else would actually, in effect, choreograph and orchestrate your side of the story because criminal defense lawyers weren't particularly common. Okay, so now this right to remain silent has changed in in its implications and context in a world without lawyers. Okay, now lawyers come onto the scene. See, I'm I'm showing you how over time this one simple, seemingly simple little idea actually interacts in complex ways with the rest of the ecosystem. Okay, so now we've got some lawyers on the scene, but it's still a crime to pose the government in various ways. There are criminal sedition laws on the books in Britain. And there are also laws, not just treason laws, but constructive treason laws. The monarchy is anxious, worried about threats to it, and there are severe punishments for it for those who opposed Donald Trump. I mean, the king. Let me read to you just what happens to you if you actually are judged guilty of treason. So much of our language today is metaphoric, but some of the metaphors have become dead metaphors because we actually don't understand what they originally literally referred to. So let me tell you what the the very common expression drawn and quartered, to be drawn and quartered is all about. Today, it's, it's used somewhat metaphorically, like, you know, just someone going after you fiercely. Here's what the judge pronounces. Um, and it's very formulaic, slightly different versions of this, but only slight variations of the standard sentence that's pronounced in a treason trial. This is what the judge says to the convicted defendant. This is the sentencing. You are to be drawn, that is dragged, upon a hurdle to the place of execution. And there you are to be hanged by the neck and being alive. So it's not hanged by the neck till you're dead. And being alive, cut down. And your privy members, you know what that is, your genitals, to be cut off 
and your bowels to be taken out of your belly and there burned, you being alive. This is in your literally in your face. They disembowel you, rip out your entrails, and burn them in front of your, your dying face. And your head to be cut off, and your body to be divided into four quarters, and that your head and quarters be disposed of, where his majesty shall think fit, and that's because they're going to put them on pike staffs so that everyone else gets the point. This is what happens when you go against King Trump, um, um, uh, King whatever. Okay, now in that world, oh, and it's not just a, a crime to commit actual treason, but to commit, Parliament proliferates sometimes a whole bunch of related statutes. They're called constructive treason statutes, including a crime called compassing or imagining the king's death. It's like the, the sign, don't even think about parking here. If you even think about the king's death, apparently, because they want to make it easy to prove treason, okay? And it's hard to prove. Now, think about how if the crime is like only in your head, you're actually not doing very much, which is, by the way, what those people in Michigan said. Oh, we weren't really planning to kidnap the governor. We were just kind of, you know, that was just all talk. Or, or people in, in the January 6th thing saying, oh, actually, we said all sorts of things on the Internet, but that was just blowing off steam or something like that. Well, England actually makes even blowing off steam, if it's blowing off steam against the crown, constructive treason, capital offense. Now, how are you going to prove that? Now, in the Internet world, you might actually you know, have the tweet or something, but pre-Internet, Okay, you wrote something in a diary. Well, that was a mistake, because then if they can grab that diary and use it against you, you know, your your thoughts against the, the crown or something, but suppose they don't have that. Or even if they do, they still have to prove not just maybe what you were planning, but your your motive, your intent. Well, if they can force you to take the stand under oath and testify against yourself, be a witness against yourself, well, then you're screwed. You know, because they ask you under oath, are you opposed to the king? Are you a crypto Catholic? Do you, you know, love the Pope? You could lie, of course, but if you're a religious person, that might be to condemn your mortal soul. And again, they see this is, these are background things that are uh, in a world where lots of people are religious and where false testimony under oath, perjury is not just a secular crime, but possibly a mortal sin of a certain sort. You're, you're condemning yourself in a certain ways. So if they could actually force you to take a stand, you either slit your own throat by admitting truthfully, yeah, I did it, this was my intent, this is what was in my head, or you deny it, and now your soul is at risk. And this, is, this doesn't sound all that different from the Roman uh, situation that you said, because you know, on the one hand, you're guilty. Right, you're guilty of treason against the king because you thought about it. So we say, well, you know, you shouldn't really be uh, required to testify against yourself. Well, why not if you're guilty? The answer is because that law is bad. Okay, just so, just like with the Romans. So it's really the same thing. It is, but you know, I'm showing you now, you know, a thousand miles away, and a thousand years later, you know, you're you're seeing a version of the same thing. Absolutely right. So again, when we hear this, this justification for for the protection against self incrimination, it's based on a revulsion against the law. It's not. Yes, and now we have recapitulated in this conversation a brilliant article 
by my late friend, my very dear friend, William Stunts, Bill Stunts. He, he, he was exactly my age and he passed away way too soon. It's in the Yale Law Journal. It's 1995. And actually, oh, I'm pulling it up now. I'm the very first person he thanks in this opening footnotes. Uh, it was alphabetical, but that was very sweet of him. He thanks five people, Akhil Amar, Morgan Cloud, John Harrison, John Jeffries, Michael Klarman, Charles McCurdy. Okay, six folks. And it's entitled The Substantive Origins of Criminal Procedure. Not just Fifth Amendment ideas, but search and seizure law is going to try to be attentive to this as well. In a world where the substantive criminal law is actually bad because it doesn't have a First Amendment kind of protection for political expression, you're going to try to use other things, search and seizure law or self-incrimination law as second best First Amendment ideas. Remember, you were you were asking me before, oh, maybe there should be second principles or something, because I have, you know, Fourth Amendment first principles. And so, so this isn't maybe second principles, but a second best. It's an indirect way of protecting political expression. What we call the First Amendment would be limit the ability of government to break into your house to look for your private papers, you know, which might criminate you. That's the John Wilkes case that we talked about a couple of episodes ago when we talked about the Fourth Amendment. He's a newspaper scribbler, and they're breaking his, into his house to find the, the manuscripts of the anti-monarchy new, newspaper essay, anti-monarch newspaper essay. He, he, he criticized the person of His Majesty George III and his leading minister, Lord Boot, B-U-T-E, a, a Scottish earl. Wilkes really did write the essay, which got published in a newspaper edition called the North Britain 45. And Americans were really into this, and 45 became a hashtag, became a meme, you know. Um, 45 was a really significant little code for patriots. If you said to someone 45, that meant that like you were with Wilkes. That's kind of unfortunate <laughs> then, considering who the 45th president of the United States was. <laughs> and he refers to himself as 45, you know, quite a bit, but so... I, don't, I doubt he's aware of that. Since Cleveland was both 22 and 24, we could actually say Trump was 44, but that wouldn't be a nice thing to do to, to Willie McCovey, who was one of my um, heroes growing up. But they were trying to find the news that the original of the newspaper essay that Wilkes had published, but cleverly, he had probably just thrown it in the fire. So they didn't find it. But in a world that won't protect him if they find the piece of paper, we want to restrict the ability of the government to search for private papers and diaries. That will become, you know, the, uh, the Fourth Amendment. That's, that is Wilkes versus Wood, um, per Lord Camden um, in the 1760s. And even if we can't introduce, if, if he can't find the paper, if we could put him on the stand and force him, you know, under penalty of perjury and, and maybe even eternal damnation, the possibility of eternal damnation to tell the truth, we could convict him with his own confession in an open court. And, and so, again, in that world, we're going to have a certain idea of Fifth Amendment self-incrimination, a Fourth Amendment search and seizure, criminal procedure provisions in order to protect the substantive rights like what we call the First Amendment. And that's Bill Stunts's really nifty idea in this article in 1995, The Substantive Origins of Criminal Procedure. So there's two things that are being protected there, I think. Um... You know, on the one hand, you, one might complain, well, again, we're protecting the guilty. He did it. Um, so why shouldn't he have to say that he did it? Um, but two things that it sounds like you're saying are being protected are, number one, 
political speech in particular, and number two, the use of the power of the state to find incidental information against their enemies. So in other words, you know, they, 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 you search a newspaper ostensibly because you're, you're looking for information A, but then you find information B, C, and D, which is really what you want, um, which is you know, in, information against you know, Nixon's enemies when he searches the Washington Post or something like that. So, the, so, so political speech is being protected and also the misuse of the, the criminal process to, find, to, to gain uh, political advantage. Excellent. I might actually have this uh, slightly different formulation. We're trying to protect political speech and maybe religious speech, freedom of thought, both political and religious or more conscience based more generally. We're trying to actually limit abusive government punishment of its adversaries and enemies more generally. And if you heard the language of the typical treason punishment, that's you know, if that's not cruel and unusual, it's, it's pretty darn close. It's, it, it's definitely cruel. Maybe it's all too usual, but it's it's the most gruesome punishment imaginable. And we're trying to spare people from that. So all of that's in the background of English self-incrimination and search and seizure law, even once lawyers have come into the picture. And remember, before lawyers are in the picture, John Langbein's point that if you, you know, yeah, you can be silent if you want, but it's not, <laughs> you're going to get convicted because no one's going to take your defense for you. Now, let's cross the pond. Now we're in America at the founding. Once we have a First Amendment protecting religious speech, political speech, freedom of thought, once we actually have a Fourth Amendment protecting diaries and private papers, which even if not threatening to the regime or illegal, are just very personal and private. Once we have those things in place, once we have restrictions on cruel and unusual punishment, you know, so once we have an Eighth Amendment and a First Amendment and a Fourth Amendment, the question is, like, why do we need a fifth and what kind of Fifth Amendment self-incrimination idea do we need? We're still in a very religious world. And we're in a religious world in which false testimony is seen as a very bad thing. And we this don't want... the founding we're talking about. Yes. We don't want the government to lead people into temptation, to borrow from the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. So suppose you actually committed a two-bit offense, you some petty theft. And petty theft is not a good thing, but let's imagine it's not a felony, it's just a mere misdemeanor, and your thumb might get branded for it or something like that, or you might have to stand in the stocks. But you're not going to lose your life, you're not going to use many years of your liberty, but who wants to you know, be in the stocks and have eggs thrown at them or have their thumb branded or something like that? So if they put you on the stand you're going to deny it. It's a natural temptation of, of kind of self-protection. And you're going to deny it falsely because you really are guilty. Well, now in a religious world, you've actually saved yourself in the short term from some uh, nasty consequence, but only possibly by damning your immortal soul. And the government basically trapped you into this spiritual suicide. So the general rules at the time of the founding were not only can you not be forced to take the stand if the government wants to put you on the stand, you're not allowed to take the stand, even if you want to in a criminal case. 
because your temptation is going to be to take the stand and falsely deny it, even though you are guilty. And now you see it's a kind of cruel and unusual punishment idea of a certain sort. You were guilty of a small thing, but we trapped you into making a, a false denial. And, and now, at least in the eyes of God, you, you committed a much greater sin. So at the time of the founding, all sorts of people who might be tempted to lie were not allowed to be witnesses. Plaintiffs in civil, civil cases weren't allowed to testify. Defendants in civil cases weren't allowed to testify. Criminal defendants, even in their own behalf, weren't allowed to testify. And by symmetry, if I can't testify on my own behalf, it seems unfair that the government can force me to testify against myself, just kind of on pure symmetry grounds. Government has a lawyer. I get to have a lawyer. Government gets to produce evidence. I get to produce evidence. Gee, if I can't testify on my own behalf, why should the government be allowed to to force me to testify on my own behalf? And those were the background rules of evidence at the founding, state and federal, in almost every courtroom in America. So they didn't really think that much about the idea that a criminal defendant can't be put on the stand because no interested witness, that's what they would call them, interested witnesses, a person who has an interest in the outcome, in those days was actually allowed to take the stand. Those are background rules of evidence. Now you're seeing, Andy, once again, this same little phrase, Nemo tenator, you know, say ipsum accusare or something, is is changing its shape, um, you know, because of other things around it. Evidence laws, religious doctrines, substantive criminal law, and the like. Okay, so that's the founding period. And they didn't give a lot of thought to the thing. But note, once again, we're protecting guilty people to a certain extent as such, but we're pr- protecting them from disproportionate cosmic punishment, basically. For your own benefit, I'm not going to let you take the stand, and I definitely am not going to force you to take the stand, because you're going to lie about it and doom your, your soul. Right. In, in a sense, they're in that realm, they're, they're not guilty, they're innocent. You know, the, their soul is innocent. Until um, the, the and, government has created the crime, right. it's, you know. And by the way, that's true today with the, the Dobbs leak. If the clerks were all forced to swear that they did not leak, that's actually a crime under the False Statements Act, which is 18 U.S.C. 1001. So uh, very famously, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. That's, I think, how they got Martha Stewart, not for insider trading, but for falsely denying that she had engaged in insider trading of a certain sort. Because she might have had a technical defense, possibly, to the underlying charge, but she lied to authorities, and you can't do that. That's itself a crime, That and that's easier to prove, you see. Okay, now the world is going to change again. Now we're moving forward to the 14th Amendment time period after the Civil War. It sounds like you're making the point here that at the founding, the justification for, for the Fifth Amendment is almost purely, or at least that, as, that aspect of the Fifth Amendment is, only, is almost purely a religious one. They didn't really think very much about it because, again... Um, well, if it's a big idea that we're going to rely on, then we then it needs to be a big idea. And now, oh, what does Akhil Amar think the most important time period when thinking about the Bill of Rights is? Does he actually think it's Roman times? Oh, not so much, because that might have been very, very different. Does he think it's even the founding? We're talking about the Fifth Amendment in the Bill of Rights. It comes from 1791. Is that actually what Akhil Amar thinks? 
I mean, I think you're obviously trying to get me to say that it's the it's the reconstruction. Yes, but, but I am I think, trying to get you to say that, and I, you just but, said it. But I don't uh, think that I would necessarily agree because I think it depends when the enduring idea was actually was actually generated. So, right, so I'm going to I'm going to tell you if it, it's it turns a different out idea that, that's that's generated at the reconstruction. Okay, but perhaps it's not. Perhaps it's the same idea. And then, correct. You're absolutely right. But it turns out here it is the 14th Amendment time period. That is when we get the clear big idea. And I haven't told you quite yet. And it's going to be the opposite of this earlier day. It's going to be about protecting innocent people as such and not guilty people. And and now you're saying, oh, originalism is interesting. And it's not mechanical. And it's not just because the word has to be read this way or that way. It's not because of dictionaries, Antonin Scalia. It's actually you know, because you have to see how everything fits together. Okay, here's what happens after the founding. You still don't take the stand under oath in a criminal case, but the government in various ways is trying to figure out what happens. And so they're going to, in effect, force you to talk outside the criminal case. And then the question is, what has to be excluded from the criminal case if they force you to talk outside the criminal case? Here's what I mean. Suppose the government said, okay, we're not going to force Amar to take the stand against himself in a criminal case. We're going to, in the middle of the trial, walk across the street, force him to answer questions, maybe even not under oath. So we're going to save and spare him spiritual torment. But we're going to ask him what happened. We're going to take a transcript of that. And then we're going to walk back across the street and introduce the transcript to the, the jury. And maybe it's not under oath, but but that's what we're going to do. And you say, well, how do we force Amar to do this? If he doesn't answer, we're going to pose physical force on him. The rack, the thumbscrew or something. And, and, and that's not, they're going to say cruel because he can end it at any time by talking, or we're going to just say that's contempt and we're going to punish him merely for his silence itself, but we're going to do it outside the criminal case. Okay, can we do that? Or we're going to ask him to do it before the criminal trial has begun in a grand jury proceeding or something. We're going to force him to to talk. And again, maybe it's not even under oath. Now, here's what you're beginning to see. In order to protect certain Fifth Amendment values, we're going to actually have to apply the Fifth Amendment outside a criminal case in certain situations and exclude something then from, you're going to be allowed to take the Fifth in a grand jury proceeding or something like that, in a civil deposition maybe even brought by the government, but then we're going to have to exclude certain things from the criminal case itself if it ever materializes. Because if we can't force, if the government can't force you to take the stand, in the middle of the case, in front of the jury, it seems, oh, not so different if it forces you to to talk across the street and then introduces the transcript, especially if it were under oath. But let's imagine they say, oh, it won't be under oath. Or let's even imagine in the criminal trial, they say, oh, we're going to let you take the stand, but we're not going to administer the oath to you. So don't worry about spiritual punishment. That's now taken off the table. Is that right or fair? Now you're seeing how complicated and interesting all this is. Just as an aside to the audience, almost no one who teaches constitutional law actually also teaches and writes in criminal procedure. I'm one of three or four people that actually knows this stuff. And that's what you're getting in this podcast is someone who knows or claims to know and be an expert on and have written about 
all of constitutional law, including criminal procedure. And, and you're seeing how some of these ideas are going to connect with pure con law ideas like religious freedom and, and political expression or privacy, diaries, homes, all the rest. Okay, so here's how it comes up in a state. The state of New York is called People versus Kelly. And in People versus Kelly, guys dragged into the grand jury. This is not so different, you see, than Donald Trump, Letitia James, you know, just being dragged in by the government and asked questions. Were you at the gambling table? Gambling is illegal. He says, I'm not going to tell you. You can't force me to. And they say, okay, we hereby immunize you. And, And here's the nature of the immunity. The nature of the immunity is whatever you say won't be read into evidence at the trial. And in that sense, you will never be a witness against yourself in the criminal case because the words that we're forcing you to utter will not actually be given to the jury. Okay, And therefore, the Fifth Amendment will never have been violated because you never will have been made to be a witness against yourself in the criminal case itself because they're saying this grand jury isn't the case. There's no indictment yet. There's there's no, you know, um, people versus Kelly, people versus uh, Trump criminal case. And as long as your words are never introduced against you, you will never have been a witness against yourself. That's the only immunity we're going to give you. And if you don't answer truthfully, you're going to be prosecuted for perjury. That's not eternal damnation, perhaps. Maybe How is it even perjury if you're not sworn in? We, we, don't do, we don't do it under oath, okay? So, um, but we, so we call it schmergery, okay? So we spare you from eternal damnation, but it's going to be a crime if you lie, and it's going to be a crime. We're going to punish you if you clam up, okay? So now you, if you clam up, you're going to be punished. If you lie, you're going to be punished. If you speak, uh, we won't introduce the words against you. And you say, fine, I was at the gambling table. Now, you're, you know, the interrogator, the, the, the grand inquisitor, Andy. I'm, I'm Kelly. Um, I say, okay, I was at the gambling table. What's the next question you're, want, you're going to want to ask me? Who was there with you? Yes. Oh, you would have made a great prosecutor. Now, if I have to answer that question, you know, and I, then I say, oh, you know, my brother Vic was with me. My son was with me. And they don't have any privilege to refuse to testify against me. You know, they can make my son testify against me. They, they, they can make my brother testify against me. And I will never have been made a witness against myself because my words aren't going to be read against me. But if they can force me to say who else was at the gambling table and then they can talk to them. And by the way, they can say, and who was, were you gambling? And they say, well, I prefer not to say. And they say, okay, we immunize you. Okay, I was gambling too. And who was there with me, with you? And they say, oh, that would be a keel. So they get me to testify against them and them to testify against me. And okay, now you see, is that okay? People versus Kelly says, yes, that is okay. It, it was a state case after the Constitution was adopted and before the Civil War. Now the Civil War emerges and an issue arises. There's a whole bunch of money missing from a government office. What do you think happens next? Well, they convene an investigation. Who's the they? Who who, who should investigate? Because presumably this is maybe, you know, the federal executive branch. Mm-hmm. So Congress. Congress, congressional oversight. This is what they do. So mm-hmm. they hold some hearings. They haul in, the, I think there were two clerks in the office. And they say, you know, wh- uh, what happened to the money? And they say, we take the fifth. Okay. Now, is that a criminal case itself? No, 
But of course, you see, they can't be forced to talk outside the criminal case if their words can then be introduced in the criminal case. So Congress, in effect, says, fine, we want to get to the bottom of this. We give you complete immunity from prosecution. You can never be prosecuted. Then the Fifth Amendment's irrelevant because you, if you can't be prosecuted, there won't ever have been a criminal case that violated you know, anything whatsoever. So they testify. They say, oh, okay, well, in that case, we stole the money. And maybe actually, I can't remember, the government was able to recover the money. I can't remember. Maybe they stole it and frittered it away at the gambling table or whatever. But Congress is not amused. So Congress passes a statute saying, gee, next time that happens, we're going to give a witness immunity, but a narrower immunity. Okay, now this is the beginning of now a different idea of self-incrimination, you see. Here's the statute that is proposed. The pre-existing statute gave what's called transactional immunity, complete immunity from prosecution for anyone forced to testify before Congress. That was on the books in 1857. Lyman Trumbull, Lincoln's friend from Illinois, senator, criticized this as too sweeping, allowing, quote, the greatest criminal to escape. Okay, so now he's not so charmed by this idea of letting guilty people, you know, go free. Subsequent events confirmed Trumbull's fears, and the act was pointedly amended in 1862 to read simply, quote, the testimony of a witness, that is a congressional witness, shall not be used as evidence in any criminal procedure proceeding against such witness. So now what does that mean? It sounds a lot like the Fifth Amendment, but hmm, okay, I'll read it again. The testimony of a witness, that is a congressional witness, shall not be used as evidence in any criminal proceeding against such witness. Congressional debate over that bill showed conclusively that Congress believed that the Constitution required only this narrow People v. Kelly immunity. Here's Senator Benjamin Wade, and that would be Benjamin Franklin Wade, for those of you who are interested. He described the scope of the immunity under this new statute. You may inquire, a wit- you being Congress, you may inquire, a witness may, testim- may testify, and may be compelled to testify out of court. But whatever he says shall not be used as evidence against him in any court. That is all a rascal ought to have at the hands of justice. If his out-of-court testimony is given, though it cannot be used directly against him, it may lead to other testimony that may throw light on the subject, whereby in the concatenation of events he may be convicted of crime. Well, sir, I hope it will be so. Okay, so Akil can be forced to testify before Congress. He has to answer. He has to answer truthfully. If it's not, we call it merjury or, or, or whatever. If he clams up, we throw him into the dungeon. That's contempt of, of Congress. If he testifies, uh, presumably truthfully, he avoids the punishment for false testimony, and he avoids the punishment for clamming up, and his words won't be introduced against him directly. But we're going to ask him, who else was, you know, in cahoots with you? And I say, oh, my brother or my son or whatever. And they can be forced to testify against Akil, Akil and vice versa. And he says, yes, that's exactly what I want. I want the people versus Kelly rule. And that's a reading of the Fifth Amendment because no person will ever have been compelled to be a witness against himself in a criminal case. Now, 
here, actually, it's not helping guilty people very much at all, but there's going to be a different idea. Anyway, that's the law that Congress passes, and Abraham freaking Lincoln signs it into law. And for me, that's really important because this is the time period when the 14th Amendment, shortly thereafter, the 14th Amendment is adopted. It's going to have a provision that makes applicable against states and localities the basic fundamental rules of the Bill of Rights. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. One of those privileges is the privilege against compelled self-incrimination, don't you see? And now states and localities are going to be required to respect that privilege as a matter of federal constitutional law. But now we have a different understanding because of this very, very clear congressional statute of what the scope of that privilege is. It's a very narrow idea. Your words can't be introduced directly against you in a criminal case, but all sorts of other things that the words lead to can, what lawyers call fruits. And the fruits can be words, but other people's words, you know, your brother's words, your, your son's words, your best friend's words. And now we're going to figure out what's the big idea and why. It's a different big idea. It's a totally different big idea, but it's a new understanding of this idea that no person shall be compelled to be a witness against himself in, in any criminal case. It's a different idea. And I argue it's going to have implications not just against states and localities, but even against the federal government. And this is the idea in Bruin. Oh, we need to look not just at the founding, if we're good originalists, but at the time of the Civil War. And there's much more clarity about what this is and means and why after the Civil War. And I'll tell you what it is in just a moment. The new big idea. So a question about this. So what we have is we have the Fifth Amendment, okay, and then we have a statute wherein Congress purports to interpret the Fifth Amendment. And then we have the 14th Amendment that puts a further gloss on it. Okay. Now you go to court and you have a case and the, def- and the defendant says, I don't agree with Congress's interpretation of the, of the Fifth Amendment and I want the court to interpret it. Now, this is really, in a sense, law of law, right? This is criminal procedure. Yes. So in some ways, you would think the court would be more authoritative than Congress in interpreting this. And the statute, court does get statute involved. Statute or no statute. As, and uh, Andy, brilliant. The court does get involved. It invalidates that congressional statute, and it does so in a case in 1892 called Councilman versus Hitchcock. And I claim the court was in, was idiotic in doing that. And it's the same idiotic court that actually is going to give us Plessy versus Ferguson in, in the same era and overprotecting corporations in certain ways and underprotecting. Um, blacks. Yes, thank you, Pollock. Yes. So I do not think very well of the justices in this era. And they don't get it. They don't. And I understand why they don't, because you need to be a scholar to unravel all of this and disentangle it and see that there's a new and different and better big idea that we no longer need to be protecting guilty people as such, because we have a First Amendment, which protects religious and political thought and expression. And we no longer need to be super tender about searches and seizures because we actually have a Fourth Amendment that's just all about that. Whether you're guilty or not, diaries should generally be protected. But but maybe Bluebeard's diary 
in which he confesses all the crimes that he committed, all the women that he killed, maybe that should receive less protection. Or Ted Kaczynski's diary, the Unabomber, the diary was used against him. So maybe diaries aren't sacrosanct, but they should be should be specially protected because a lot of innocent people have all sorts of embarrassing stuff in their iPhone, in their, in their diary. But because we have a Fourth Amendment, we can protect privacy in tailored and careful ways without protecting people who commit rape and robbery and murder more generally. So we have a First Amendment about speech and, and a religious and political thought and, and speech. We've got a Fourth Amendment that's all about houses and persons, papers and privacy, but that says the search can be done as long as it's reasonable. And if you're trying to use a diary to convict someone of murder, you know, th- there's a, that's a more legitimate justification for the intrusion than if you're trying to use a diary just to embarrass someone politically, you see. So we have a Fourth Amendment. We have a First Amendment. We've got an Eighth Amendment about rules of preventing kind of savage punishment. We also are beginning to change our understandings of witnessing. In this era, civil plaintiffs are allowed to testify, civil def- even though they're interested and might lie. Civil defendants are allowed to testify. We're moving now toward a different kind of world. Andy, especially, and you unfortunately know some of this from personal experience, in divorce courts, America Day, in family courts, people lie up and down and sideways, up the wazoo. They just do. And you can confirm that, you know, from personal experience. Um, that's a different personal world. Personal experience the- of observing other people lie. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you very much for that really important uh, correction. Yes. And we won't get into because we don't want to deal with libel law here, you know, which other people we might or might not be talking about. But but you have you've seen some of this with your own eyes. OK, so so now the rule evidence laws are changing to some extent, in part because we don't believe in eternal damnation of souls for perjury quite to the same extent that they did at the founding. You see, so so Councilman versus Hitchcock in 1892 invalidated this law that Lincoln signed. And, and I think that was the big mistake because I have a different idea of what the Fifth Amendment is about after this Reconstruction experience. It, it, it re-centers me. And the, and the big idea here is going to be more attractive because it's going to fit better with the rest of criminal procedure and make more common sense. Instead of protecting guilty people as such, which we needed to do, the early Christian church had to do that, and so did the the folks in jolly old England in the 1600s and and 1700s. But now, actually, rather than protecting guilty people as such, because we don't have crimes that shouldn't be crimes, now it's going to be about protecting innocent people, and I'm going to need to explain to you how, actually, a different vision of the Fifth Amendment begins to emerge. Okay, so we're going to switch from the this focus from the Fifth Amendment originally protecting the guilty, in a sense, to something else. And, right. and I guess just listening to you, my summary of that would be that um, we don't need to protect against the law itself. The law itself is not an outrage in the mm-hmm. way that it, that it was at, at one point. We don't have to protect uh, t- testimony so that the first, so that freedom of the press is preserved and things like that, because we have the First Amendment. We don't have to protect against the disclosure uh, of things that were found uh, during inappropriate searches and such, because we have the Fourth Amendment. Um, and we don't have to protect because you're going to be disproportionately punished 
because we have the Eighth Amendment. So we have all these protections that serve many of the original purposes of the prohibition against self-incrimination. So we're left with other purposes, and those can be, you're saying, possibly uh, satisfied without protecting guilty people. Right. That's that's the point at which we're at. Correct. And and two other things. Beautiful summary. They're changing religious understanding. So we're no longer as freaked out by the idea of damning one's immortal soul with false testimony. That's just because of just changing religious understandings in the society. And one sees this in the law because we're getting rid of, in civil cases, for example, um, in evidence law, prohibitions on parties who have a self-interest. They're now allowed to testify, whereas before they weren't. So you're seeing you know, other things in the law reflecting these broader changes in the world. So what we're left with is what purpose, the question before us then is, what purposes are left for the Fifth Amendment a prohibition against self-incrimination to serve, and how can we best serve them and not sacrifice other societal interests like we want to convict people that are guilty. Right. And it's going to be especially important to convict people when they're guilty after the 14th Amendment. And here's why. Because before the 14th Amendment, the federal prohibition only applies against the federal government. We've talked about Barron versus Baltimore on many occasions, 1833 John Marshall opinion that says the original Bill of Rights only applies against the federal government. Well, there are not very many federal crimes. At the founding, there's kind of a federal customs violations and the white collar offenses of, of various sorts, evading liquor laws and tax evasion, more generally, carriage laws back to Hylton. And for a while, a brief nanosecond, there were the Alien Sedition Acts, um, and that made it a crime to criticize the federal government. And that was a bad law. We don't want that law actually enforced, but but it lapses. So even if you had a very, very aggressive and robust self-incrimination doctrine, not so bad because actually it's just against the federal government and these crimes aren't so essential. These criminal laws aren't so absolutely essential to, to good order. But now when it applies against the states, thanks to the 14th Amendment and courts in the 20th century eventually come to apply it against the states. We call that the incorporation um, revolution of, of the Warren Court. And, and that was overruling cases, you see. Um, and the overruling cases is, my view, perfectly okay if the cases are, are wrongly decided because the courts didn't initially, the Supreme Court, apply the Bill of Rights against the states even after the 14th Amendment as it should have. And the Warren Court Revolution overturned all those cases. And take us back to our our Dobbs episodes and the rest. It's okay to actually, or the Bruin episode. It's okay, or the Carson episode. It's okay to, to modify old decisions if they're egregiously wrong. But now that we're applying in the modern era self incrimination against states, now we're talking about law and order episodes. We are talking about states and localities and uh, prosecuting murder, rape, robbery, burglary, basic you know, crimes with real victims. Whereas tax evasion, uh, uh, federal tax evasion, federal customs, duty evasion, those are somewhat victimless. They're white collar. They're not violent crimes against individuals the way states are protecting against violent criminals, murderers, rapists, robbers, and the like. So protecting guilty people as such, which was the the deep origins of Fifth Amendment self-incrimination, is going to be much more problematic in this, you know, incorporation universe, you see. 
Okay, so what's the big idea in this alternative vision, and how does it connect to the text? Here's how. Okay, we start with the core textual idea, you can't be made to take the stand against your will in a criminal case. I'll explain why in a minute, but the text pretty clearly says that. Okay, so I'm going to have to come up with an account of why that would make sense, That why that would be a good rule. You can't be forced to be a witness against yourself, forced, compelled, in a criminal case. Well, and now I need to tell you why. Here's why. Because maybe you're innocent, but you might look guilty. If a prosecutor can put you on the stand, you don't even get to just tell your story, just free-flowing. You get asked questions. You sometimes get cut off in the middle of the word. If it's a very artificial process in certain ways that can deeply disadvantage unsophisticated lay folk. You sweat, you stutter, you get confused, you get tricked into confessing or seeming to confess to something that you really didn't do. You misreport an interior mental state. You say, well, I did it because of this or that. And that might be unreliable. Maybe you didn't do it for that reason, but your mere words are out there and can be used to hang you. So On this different account, we protect people because they might very well be innocent and might be erroneously convicted by their own truthful testimony. Let me contrast that with what courts did say and continue to say from this other perspective, the guilt protection perspective, about the Fifth Amendment and its antecedents. You'll see many judicial references to the cruel trilemma. Here's the cruel trilemma. They force you to take the stand and basically you're screwed. There are three paths forward in the way under this cruel trilemma vision. You simply refuse to speak, but then you're punished for your silence itself. You speak, but you lie, but now you're going to be punished for perjury. You speak and you tell the truth, but now you're hanging yourself with your own words. And that's seen as cruel. Now, from my point of view, why is that third fork cruel at all? You did it. You know, what's cruel about, you know, admitting that you did it? That's what we teach people in ordinary morality. When you do something wrong, confess to it. And if you don't confess, maybe someone else is going to be wrongly prosecuted for that. So, but we've seen how the deep roots of this are about protecting the guilty as such, but but that's because certain criminal laws shouldn't have actually existed laws going after religious minorities or, or opposition governmental speakers. Different vision. We're protecting innocent people as such. Uh, but an innocent person, because he sweats or stutters or, um, or misremembers, might be made to seem guilty even if he's not. Now, if that's the idea, if it's innocence protection, what does that mean for all the questions that we asked. For example, what's the scope of the immunity? For example, if you refuse to take the stand, should the jury be able to draw an adverse inference against you? And what kind of compulsion are we talking about in the criminal case? How about if you're forced to testify outside the criminal case, like Donald Trump? What needs to be excluded from the criminal case? What inferences or not can be drawn against you, you know, in the civil case or or some other situation? What about if it's not words, but let's say your own blood, is that excluded or not? And why? How should we think about diaries? 
How should we think about corporations that don't sweat or stutter the way individuals do? Oh, there are going to be all sorts of questions that we're going to have to answer. And your answer to all those questions will depend on the big idea. It's not going to actually turn on. The words aren't going to tell you the answer because the words can be read different way. Person, compelled, criminal case, witness. Those words in isolation can mean different things and have meant different things in different times and places. So we're going to have to pick which one, uh, which understanding of those words we want today and why. Uh, And I gave you two competing big ideas. Protecting the guilty as such and the cruel trilemma, which is what courts sometimes say today, or innocence protection as such, which the courts also say today, and they can't both be right, in fact. They're going to be warring against each other at every level of doctrine, just like equal versus separation. And I'm going to tell you in the next episode you know, what all the implications are for this innocence protection vision of self-incrimination clause. So all you guilty people out there, you're already screwed. You don't have to turn in next week, but tune in next week. But the rest, but for the rest of us innocent persons, next week is for you. And before we go, Akil, uh, I just want to talk for a minute about the podcast itself. You know, the, the podcast is free. We have essentially no ads. We we talk about Ever Scholar from time to time, but really, in, in some ways, this podcast is even a part of the Ever Scholar Project or the Ever Scholar Project is a part of it because you can see today we're talking about Roman law and this and that, and we're going across disciplines and this is education for everyone. So it has a lot in common with that. At any rate, we're not subjecting our listeners at this point to, you know, irrelevant uh, ads and things like that. So, okay, well, what do we, what do we want from our listeners then? If we don't want you to listen to pitches and we don't want this or that, well, our project here, I think it's fair to say is to improve civic discourse in America, to increase civic discourse and around the world. And, you know, we can't do it ourselves, obviously. So uh, I know you have a request of our listeners. I, I do. Um, I, I, of course, want those who are really interested in learning more to experience the books, especially the most recent one, The Words That Made Us. But you are getting a free Yale a law school education, a free ever scholar education. Yeah, we've ranged across centuries and uh, and across continents and done theology and law today. And and we're going to return to all this next episode. But um, in addition to reading the words that made us, if you're so inclined, and I hope you are so inclined, and this prequel, America's Constitutional Biography, here's my big ask to you. If this podcast has been useful to you, tell a friend. Tell actually three friends. Try to figure out who are the three people who you know, who in this respect are most like you, who would get a lot out of this experience if you think that you've gotten something out of this podcast experience. Because this is free to the world. Gail's motto is looks at raritas, light and truth. We're trying to spread light and truth. And you can help us do that just by telling your friends that this is a serious podcast and that they might learn something from it and, and it would be, might be worth their time just as we hope you're learning something from it and it's been worth your time. So our ask going forward, and we're going to repeat this in subsequent episodes, is tell three friends. All right, and we're counting on you. This is, this is not just a meme. This is not just like, okay, we say give us a good review, which we, by the way, we do want that too. 
um, especially if you're on you know Apple Podcasts, one of those services where there's an opportunity to leave a review, please do, um, especially a positive one. But at any rate, yes, we're, this is not just an idle request. This is essential to the mission of the podcast. You are essential. We're counting on you, and please take it seriously. Please, if you've already told three friends, thank you. Tell three more. And uh, this is what we need. This is what we're counting on. And thank you in advance. Thank you.